So I'm outside my daughter's uh, art class. This mosque, the Valley Ranch Islamic Center, actually has the most popular imam in America as the imam. Really? What's his, his name? name? His name is Omar Suleiman. So the Dallas-Fort Worth area is becoming like the go-to place, the kind of epicenter for Muslim life in America. Not, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but- He's uh, pretty hip looking. I just looked him up. Omar? <laughs> yeah. He's kind of cool looking. I don't know. I think of, yeah. I guess I think of uh, shakes the way I think of like old priests. Well, look up Yasser Berges. Yasser is more of kind of an old school imam. If you look at him, you say, okay, that looks like an old school shake. Oh, yeah. He looks, he looks more like what yeah, I was yeah, accustomed yeah, yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I got to ask, are there like the equivalent of, Muslim televangelists. So that's a that's been something that's come about in the last 15 years. If you'd asked me this question 20 years ago, no, there was not. So you have two, you have the international ones that have been made famous by satellite TV networks and YouTube, like Mufti Mink out of Zimbabwe. Uh, he's a popular one. Uh, Zachary Naik, who's an Indian guy based in Malaysia, he's a popular one. But in the United States, Omar Suleiman, and Yasser Qadi are probably the two most famous, and they're both here in the Dallas suburbs. Uh, Omar Suleiman, he's here in Irving, Yasser Qadi in uh, Plano. Uh, you got another guy. Um, I wouldn't think Texas would be the most welcoming place for Muslims, to be that's honest. That's kind of the oddity. You know, I only moved down here because my ex did. Um, Pre-9-11, Northern Virginia, the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., were the hubs for like the professional Muslims, you know, your scholars, your organizations. And because that area was more negatively impacted than any other area for Muslims due to post 9-11 changes, gradually the suburbs of Dallas became the new hub. I'd argue not a good thing. I mean, I think there's better places, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> so. <laughs> the uh so i so i looked up that podcast that you were telling me about the rise and fall of mars hill and for those of you who haven't heard it uh the decline and fall of mars hill is a podcast about a mega church leader whose personality kind of took over this mission and then destroyed the community. It's a brilliantly composed podcast and, and something of a cautionary tale, I think, to people who, well, people like myself, who might be tempted to let their personalities get in the way of their ministry. In the Catholic community, we've experienced a very similar thing with the rise of these celebrity priests, YouTube personalities and whatnot. And that didn't always end well either. I did, I did a video because uh, I had a lot of thoughts on it. So share some of them with me because I have some thoughts too. And I, and I was also kind of wondering if there was an, a Mars Hill equivalent in the Muslim community. Uh, yeah, there are. But uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, we've had dynamic imams come forward and be unethical. And, really? 
congregations burn out, et cetera. We, we, but it's it's a little more colorful on the Muslim side of the fence. You know, it's a little little more colorful. I was told about this podcast by a Christian pastor. I help I happened to meet down here just on the course of business, and they, they said I'm a pastor. We started talking, and uh, they said, "Hey, you should check out the Mars Hill podcast." And then I had someone else tell me that, so I said, "Let you know, let me check this thing out." And I had wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the Southern Movement in America. So it was it was kind of similar to that. When I look at the politics of evangelical Christianity or Christianity in America, I have to first make an assessment that there's a lot that I don't know because I've stepped off the scene 30 plus years ago, right? So I just turned 47 last month and I haven't been to church goer since I was like 15, 16 years old, right? So mm-hmm. things have dramatically changed. Um, You've told me before, but what 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 were you raised as? Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. Okay. Yeah, I went to. Hard to the, imagine you as a Southern Baptist. I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, I went to Bell Fountain Baptist Church, uh, which is just north of the the uh, city limits of the city of St. Louis, and then I went to First Baptist Church of Ferguson. Okay. Uh, which at the time was like an early mega church, had like five thousand members. Really. So when I think it, it was a real powerhouse in Missouri Baptist Convention, but I look at this thing, Mark Driscoll, in a few different ways. Number one, they talked about how charismatic he was. He didn't appear charismatic to me at all. Um, it seemed more like a used car salesman. Yeah, he seemed kind of slick. What they didn't discuss, they talked about the growth of the suburbs, but they didn't discuss race because this was a very white Christian social phenomena they were examining and it, as is the whole mega church movement right so yes they talked about mega churches were a result of the growth of the suburbs and people being disillusioned with boomer churches uh but they didn't mix in race which i think was also wait wait, wait before wait why do you think this isn't a thing in the black church well i think they might have their own mega churches but i think there's definitely like the driftful acts 29 movement is definitely a if you look at the map, I went and looked up their church planting. It's, you know, it's like white suburbs, exurbs, right? It, okay. Another thing is it gets into the, as a Muslim, when you sit down with a teacher to learn Quran, when you, when you learn to study anything, it's a very slow process. You're going verse by verse, you're looking at language, you're looking at uh, different interpretations and disagreements centuries upon centuries. And when I look at American Protestantism as a whole or the evangelical movement, there's just not a lot of meat, you know, like, you know, you know it is so irreverent. You'll hear guys saying, you know, you know, I was at the drive-through at Chick-fil-A, you know, I was thinking about the big yeah. dude upstairs. And uh, Well, you, you find it in Catholic churches too, this sort of attempt to be hip that, uh, but not in fact, there's a hip. joke there's a joke we tell in Christian in Catholic circles. What's the uh, how many youth ministers does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is none. They let it burn out and pretend like it's working for the next 20 years. <laughs> yeah. the, the idea being that like it's basically older people who think this is going to be cool for the young folk. But in fact, what's what's drawing the young folk in is a more conservative approach. It's more conservative. I mean, their their whole thinking was, you like punk rock music? We got some Christian punk rock bands. Yeah. You like rap? We got some Christian rappers. The other thing is, when you look at the evangelical movement, there's like no hierarchy. 
So it's really prone to abuse. You get a pastor. There's no hierarchy in Islam, is there? There's no hierarchy, but there's the traditions are more deeply rooted. I mean, when you talk about evangelical, the American evangelical Protestant movement, you know, it's a it, it's what 150. It's really like 150 years old. Like they don't yeah. talk about any scholars prior to the 19th century. It's a very nationalized. Well, you got to get Catholic movement. if you start to, if you go back too far, and they don't want to do that. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, the whole thing is you, you kind of ignore 20 centuries or 19th centuries of Christian scholarship. So there's not a lot of depth, right? I've and there's not a lot of tradition. And there's not a lot of deepness to draw upon. It's kind of anti-historical, anti-intellectual at the same time. And because there's no hierarchy, there's no real structure, a pastor can kind of run roughshod and it can get abusive because there's no system. Like if a Catholic priest at St. Ambrose on the Hill yeah. is out of pocket, the archdiocese can give him the boot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know. Uh, it, it might take too long, but it, it'll happen sooner or later, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If they're funny with the money, whatever it is, you know, if if, if they start making up their own theology, well, it's much easier to it's much easier to sort out because it, there's a structure there. Like, there's, a structure. Yeah, like, there's a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a hierarchy. There's a structure. Part of this was remember they called themselves young, restless, and reformed. Mm-hmm. And so when they talk about reform, they're talking about Calvinism, right? Yeah. So. When I was growing up in the Baptist church, no one knew the history of the Baptist church. No one could tell you the difference between the Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterian. They didn't know anything. There was no real study. The the Sunday school lessons were like for dim-witted children. I mean, they were like like real basic, right? And and so Young Restless and Reform comes, you have this kind of energetic, young Christian American, right? They want something deeper. And yeah. in the Protestant tradition, the only thing you can really go to in Protestantism is Calvin, uh, Wesley, and um, and Lutheranism, right? To, to find any tradition. How come you didn't become a Catholic then? Well, no, I'm saying on the Protestant side. If you want to, <laughs> if, if, if they want to look in Protestantism, right? Right, the, right, 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 right. You, know, you got Calvin, you got Wesley, and the Lutheran church, right? And Calvinism caught on with like these young Christians and became hip and popular. Okay, there is a history. It's not that old of history, but you know, it's, you know, 400 years old or so, right? There's literature, there's theology, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, you know, they went to that, right? And now Driscoll, of course, is no longer reformed. He's, 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 he's moved on to his, his own thing. He's, now he's charismatic, but yeah. I think in the same light, the same young restless and reform movement are people they become traditional Catholic, or I'm meeting a lot of people. Or Orthodox. Met, yeah, Orthodox Church of America, OCA. Mm-hmm. I met like 10 people. These are not Greek, you know, Bulgarian, Roman. They don't have any lineage. And if you talk to them, you know, they say it's a connection to the early church. Yeah, sure, liturgy. Yeah, the liturgy, and they see it as less corrupted by modernity, you know, than Catholicism or Protestantism, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's very, I mean, there's a girl I grew up with in North County. I mean, like the waspish girl you could imagine. And she's not even going to an OCA church. She's like at a Greek Orthodox church. Yeah. I mean, their service is like three hours long, man. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I have my own theories about that, that there's, that if you can hold on to your faith 
at all, those who are remaining are clinging to it with such an iron grip. I remember I was visiting this monastery in England and, uh, you know, my monastery happens to be getting young monks and they said, well, what are you guys doing? I hope they're not more of these horrid conservatives. Mm. Well, I'm afraid they are because luckily at my monastery, the old guys are patient with these young guys and try to love them into security, you know, but it's, but it's those, that antiquity, the, the language, the liturgy that reminds them of stability, reminds of the antiquity of their faith. Mm. But, but in the, in the Catholic church, we've got the same problem. I remember my, my Sunday school class, we sat around singing bump a rump, bump a rump next to you. A la 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 And my, my family began to call it bump a rump theology that there was no, it was, it was about being nice to each other and there wasn't any meat to it. And not that these folks weren't well-meaning. I mean, they were coming, I think from a place of love, but perhaps they had grown up with such a rigid, uncompromising church that I don't know, they were afraid to move at all in the direction of discipline or doctrine or or any sort of firm teaching. Well, this has happened in the Muslim community too, because like I told you in the 90s, it was very, everything was very conservative, you know, very Islamist oriented. And now this whole reframing the narrative and, you know, one good PR to let everyone know you're not a terrorist, that social action has become so emphasized, you know, feeding the homeless, uh, poli- you know, political things. And, and we have a young generation that are, you know, you know, many of them are not really well versed yeah, in theology, yeah, yeah. but you know, they know about feeding the home, which is good, but you know, they're not really yeah. well well versed. Well, in mo- among most young practicing Catholics, the whole, the, even the term social justice is taboo, which is kind of a shame because I believe in justice, <laughs> but. Social justice seems to have been taken over by some sort of... There's a, there's a, there's a Muslim figure named Daoud Walid. He wrote a book called Towards Sacred Activism. His contention is that, you know, we should not withdraw from issues of social justice, but we should do so through the, the framework and lens uh, of our faith. And what was really in response to this young generation of Muslim activists who they're Muslim and there's a Muslim identity, but there's no real influence from Muslim theology. It's, it's times change, you know, uh, you know, you have to uh, change with them. But the way I look at it, even in a, a rough week, a rough month, I'm a huge boxing fan, <laughs> big Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury rematch. I paid 25 bucks to watch it on the big screen at the movie theater. Wow. And I get my soda and popcorn. Watch the fight, you know. What is it about boxing that that you find so exciting? Max Kellerman at ESPN now. He's a big boxing guy, and Max says it best. He said, "Boxing is my favorite sport, and it's your favorite sport." And I'll tell you why. <laughs> he said, "If you drive by a park and they're playing basketball, you're not even going to pay attention and look at it. No. If they're playing soccer, you're not going to pay attention and look at it. If two guys are standing there." <laughs> everybody on the bus is going to be watching it that's right so we have this that's true we have this certain thing that we like to watch pugilism we like to watch yeah. two people fight boxing well, I guess MMA, wrestling I guess that's why i like rugby so much it's basically a big fight between 15 guys on each side right. i mean we like that i mean it's yeah. it's it's 
I mean, it, it you know goes back to the days of the Romans and probably even before that. You know, we you know, yeah. I wonder if maybe that that some of this sort of uh, let, let's get provocative then for a second because you 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 had me watch that. Uh, what's the who's the comedy guy? The comedian just got in trouble Dave for Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle and He's I thought he actually I thought he had some pretty interesting things to say i didn't agree well he started off with a joke about pedophile priests which i thought was oh. a little offensive but yeah. but hey that's his job and besides that we we walked into that one but we can talk about pedophile priests another time maybe so it's not just a problem with catholics it's in the muslim community if you look up there's been jewish sex scandals yeah. in synagogues in brooklyn uh etc and in all religions the tendency is for the religious institution and the believers to try to cover it up because they think it's gonna be bad on the image, bad on the reputation, bad for finances. This is a pattern across religious lines. Yeah. And of course it ends up having the exact opposite effect. It makes religious look bad, it hurts finance, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I teach a class at my high school on apologetics, on how to defend the faith. And I always tell them like, I will defend the inquisition. Okay, I will even defend the Crusades, but I but I will not the the whole pedophile priest thing. Uh, my only answer to that is not on my watch because every time some Muslim blows up a bunch of innocent people, there are all these so-called moderate Muslims standing around saying, "Well, you know, you you started it, and you shouldn't have drawn the prophet, and you know this and that." I'm like, no. All I want to hear from them is. This is our problem. We will fix it, right? right. And if I'm going to hold my Muslim friends to that kind of standard, then I got to say, yeah, all right. He was wearing a clerical collar when he did it. It's my problem. I will take care of it. Right. But, right. You know, it, well, the problem is, is that uh, because society has become so secular that they may have no exposure to the Catholic Church at all, yeah. other than reading articles about pedophile priests or news reports. So that colors their whole understanding and i don't blame the media for this though i mean there's nothing nothing is better character for a story than an evil priest you know no the media should 100 cover it they should 100 be prosecuted they should face the consequence but what i'm saying is is you if you have greater experiences with the catholic church with muslims whatever then this won't color your entire view of the institution it's just like now you have Muslim families are not raising their kids in the in the mosque. They're not taking their kids to summer camps, right? Yeah. Uh, when they see a negative news story about Muslims, that's kind of like all the news they're getting. It's they're true. not following the Muslim news. But I'm saying there's a lot of problems with the sexualization of children, yeah. you know, and uh, in the secular society. Yeah. Um, even the clothes. If you got to go shopping for a little girl, um, yeah. they're risque clothes even yeah. what they're seeing in the media. And then of course we have stuff like drag queen story hour for kids and things of that nature. Yeah. Where if you're yeah. opposed to that, you're a terrible person, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you're a homophobe, you're a terrible person, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. You know, you got people twerking in front of kids and all oh, this is just great family time. Um, so, you know, it, it's not too far before the age of consent is on the table. That's 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 what I think. Now, hmm. even in religious tradition, I mean, obviously it's been very well publicized in the Catholic Church. You've had a lot of problems with uh, pedophile priests. Yeah. 
Yeah. But Muslims are not immune to this. Uh, right here in the city of Irving, on the other side of Irving, actually, uh, we had a imam fired for grooming. You know, he groomed a girl. Really? And then on her, uh, on her 17th or 18th birthday, took her to a motel. Uh, this is actually the imam, Zia Sheikh. Uh, I can call him out. He uh, performed my uh, wedding. How does this uh, happen? Why do these guys ever think they're going to get away with it? Uh, I think sometimes they do get away with it. And that's why they're encouraged by it. But maybe I wonder if maybe this this excitement about boxing because it, and the mixed martial arts and stuff is really becoming a thing. And I wonder yeah. if the response to the sort of feminization of America or this sort of anti-masculine sentiment that seems to be permeating the media. I I'm not I'm not really sure whether I agree with what I'm saying right now, but I do wonder if there isn't a sort of backlash against the feminist movement, which which was itself a backlash against what uh, toxic masculinity. I, I mean, I don't know what toxic masculinity is, but I keep hearing about it. It really has no meaning. Uh, you know, it, it it means you have a penis, therefore you're evil. Uh, <laughs> that's basically what it means. Uh, I think part of that. I mean, I mean, boxing has been popular for a long time, and MMA is a relatively new thing and it's popular and I was a wrestler and I love wrestling but I think in today's context look every movie now there is a uh, female hero the hero is a woman she's the strongest she's the smartest almost every movie right the guys are dumb betas <laughs> uh, tv shows are the same way I mean even Superman now didn't, you know? they, didn't they say he's gay now or something I Superman is a uh, switch hitter both sides Oh, okay. So, uh, so I guess that's the culture. That's the culture now, right? I mean, it's what it is, right? It's what it is. It's where the culture is at. It's not where I'm at, but it's where the culture is at. I don't have a problem with strong women. My sister's in the army and I'm in the monastery. My mom says she's not sure what she did, but my sister wears combat boots and her son wears a dress. My mom, um, yeah. so I, I don't have a problem with strong women, but I do think there is a problem with the consequences that the men become feminine or, or sub well, there's no problem with strong women, but there's a lack of strong men. And keep in mind, a lot of these people don't have any strong men in the house okay. either. They may not have any men in the house and all the teachers are women and every figure of authority is a woman. So like we have a young generation of males kind of socialized into kind of this matriarchy and there's like a rejection. You see it online, you know, the whole incel movement or the, you know, the incel. What's that? <laughs> uh, involuntary, involuntarily celibate. Oh, celibate. Yeah. What is that? I, I have heard of that. I'm not well, quite sure. I don't identify with this movement. I mean, I'm been, I ain't <laughs> We need to say, Father, but I've been a lifelong horn dog. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm um, the V cell. I'm voluntarily so. You're Valsta. You're Valsta. See, the Muslim imams, like we were in like Middle Ages, uh, even like in Saudi Arabia today, if you're like a, a popular Muslim imam, you're going to have four wives. You know, uh, you might even have uh, servants, uh, right hand possessions, as they would say. What? Wait, wait, wait. Whoa, wait, what? You might have what? You know, Slave girls, you know, right hand possessions, you know. I mean, but it, you're you're not advocating no, for I'm that, not surely. I'm just saying that's the history. That's the history, you know. Oh, oh, oh. So, like if you look at some great figures of Muslim history, it was not uncommon that they had a hundred children or something like that, right? Right. Because right. they had a room, you know, etc. Uh, 
But even nowadays, you know, if you're popular imams or just your local imams, you know, you know, they're married. Uh, some of them might in America on the down low have a second wife kind of kept from the public eye. You know, uh, if it's really? in the African-American community, it'd be public. But when you're out in the suburbs, you know, if they have a second wife, it's on the low. It's secret. But if you go to... Okay, is this something you approve of or... Yeah, I approve of it fully. Yeah, I approve of it fully. Uh, because... Uh, having more than one wife. Yeah, I approve of it. Look, you have young non-Muslims in America talk about, I think it's called polyandry, where they're in group relationships. Where women have more than one husband? No, not in Islam. The modern culture in America is teaching polyandry is acceptable. One woman, two or three boyfriends, two boyfriends, two girlfriends, coupling. Remember Ashley Bobbitt, the one that got killed in Capitol Hill? Oh, yeah. She was in a throuple. This is a new type of conservative. Really? She was in a throuple. And uh, even Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was a huh. popular congresswoman of the right, you know, she was a, a swinger. Her, her husband was a, a cuckold, uh, as they say. Really? Okay, so if secular people can do this because of a you know secular understandings, right? I mean, I know a guy in St. Louis. He's with a woman and she's with another guy, right? Okay, this is a modern secular thing where there are no rules. But polygamy, Islamic polygamy, is is fourteen hundred years old. But polygamy was practiced in Africa, in the Americas. It's it's historically been practiced. Jews historically practice polygamy when the state of israel was created and jews arrived from yemen many of them had two three wives you know they and they let them keep them but they said you know you couldn't marry anymore moving forward right so polygamy is 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 historically been practiced right but it's historically been kind of a disaster hadn't it i mean mean, at least in the hebrew scriptures whenever somebody hooks up with more than one woman it ends disastrously well i mean it can be it definitely can be a disaster, but uh, there can be situations where it works uh, as well. Uh, but the, the the situation is is that if America is going to say today, two men can get married, two women can get married, that you can have three people on a birth certificate oh, yeah. now, yeah. Th- then why can't Muslims do something that's been practiced for 1,400 years? I agree. I don't think there should, I think marriage should be between a man and a, a single man and a single woman. Once it can become between two men or a man and two women or two women and one man, and then, then it all falls apart. You effectively destabilize the most fundamental unit of society. And more importantly, still, you destabilize their children. And although I disagree with you about polygamy, I'll give you this much. At least there is a stable and strictly defined family unit in a polygamous marriage. So you're in favor of polygamy, but you are not in favor of polyandry. As a Muslim, no, I'm not in favor of polyandry. No, I, I, why not? What, what? Why would one direction be harmful and the other direction not? Okay, first of all, I think people should be, in this society, the way it's structured, yeah. people should be free to do what they want to do. So if they want to do that, they can do it, okay? Um, that's the way this society is structured. Except that you destabilize the family, you destabilize the entire society. That's done. That's shot. Yeah, that's true. Our, and, our and family the, units out the window. In the West, in the West, especially in America, the family is shot out. You know, the the, the secularists have uh, completely, you know, the counterculture, you know, the whole nine yards, yeah. right? So the difference is we got to base it on prophetic teachings. 
and scriptural teachings, uh, which is, is that the family is a patriarchal institution, that the, the father, the husband, is what they refer to in Arabic as rubble date, is the, the lord of the house. And this is a, a, an ordained structure. This structure of cuckolding and, yeah, yeah. and yeah. thruples and all and polyandry, um, it's egalitarian and largely matriarchal. Yeah, but aside from it being, say, supported by the Quran or, or by the revealed teachings, speaking biologically, psychologically, is there some sense in which it, you can show that it's healthy for a man to have more than one wife, whereas it's not psychologically healthy for a woman to have more than one husband? Yeah, I mean, the natural argument is, is that the man naturally, more often than not, will have a higher sex drive, right? And women are more biologically engineered towards monogamy. Um, if we look at the, the situation, a man could be married to the most beautiful woman in the world. There's, you know, she could be a great wife. She could be beautiful, the whole nine yards. That's true. And he'll still desire more women. You know, if a woman is happy, taken care of, it's very seldom that she's going to step out on that relationship or that marriage, right? Just because she's not biologically engineered that way. It'll happen, but the percentages are going to be much lower. Man is a lustful creature. Man always desires more. Yeah, yeah. That's why you have to limit what he can get through religious rules. <laughs> well, I guess if I'm thinking back to the 70s and the so-called sexual revolution, Basically, what happened was that um, with the invention of the pill and the and the more effective contraception, what you've got is an opportunity for women to be as irresponsible as men are. <laughs> and then what happens is the men say, well, hey, that's great. All right, go for it. And then you have a complete breakdown. It seems to me that for centuries women women were the bastions of moral integrity they were the only thing keeping us in check women are the keepers of virtue and morality is it is that a muslim thing or is that just this is the common sense <laughs> and once women are no longer the keepers of virtue and morality in a society then you're cooked and so now yeah. in, in america well, you know, today no one is the keeper of virtues and morality if you seek to be a keeper of virtue and morality, you're ostracized in the society. Well, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas said that just as men tended to be more strong physically, women were superior when it came to morality and spirituality. And I guess the sexual revolution kind of threw that out the window. But the biggest victors in the sexual revolution were desirable men. Because desirable men, after the sexual revolution and, and the pill, their sex lives shot through the roof. All of a sudden, you had men sleeping with dozens right. and hundreds of women. Commonplace, right? But the fallout of that were the less than desirable men. Now they've become the incels. These are guys, you know, they may not have been desirable 50 <laughs> years ago, but, you know, someone married them. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, okay, now... <laughs> On on no. on Twitter or something, I remember you posted something about how like you didn't trust celibacy. That's right. So, are you saying that you think celibacy is unnatural, but having more than one wife is natural? Yeah. How do you go? How do you explain that? I mean, man having more than one woman is definitely natural because it's it's been the norm. It's look the norm through human history is if you're poor, you have one woman. Okay, now if you're poor, you might have no one <laughs> in America in the West at least. The rule has been if you're poor, you have one woman. If you're talented, 
or of means, you have more than one woman. I would think the norm through human history is one man, one woman, and that once you got, say, an economy going and a civilization, then there were men who were rich enough to and strong enough to take as many women as they wanted. Well, they took women as slaves, but they also, uh, it was common, they would marry widows. Uh, they would marry, uh, uh, you know, you know, like say they're in some societies, their brother's wife would die. They would marry, you know, different. I mean, polygamy was usually not about lust. It was usually about taking someone into the family structure, you know, widows, poor women, uh, etc. Right. But you can't um, have your cake and eat it too. You just said it was because of lust that men are getting women. Woman. They're, they're getting their cake. <laughs> but but, uh, but you know, there's also utilitarian value to it. Now, I mean, in America, the only women that want to marry as a second wife are really kind of super fundamentalist, very conservative Muslim yeah. women or celebrity imams. You said the Muslim televangelists. Or women that are starstruck, starstruck <laughs> by Muslim celebrities. And these, and it's happened, we've caught it several times. These are starstruck women. They're just horny and starstruck, right? They're not necessarily pious or super fundamentalists. They're just horn dogs. You know, they're, so you don't see that as a, a case of abuse? No, that is bad. Like no, a man in a position no. of power taking advantage of an impressionable... That's bad. Okay. That's bad. That's clerical abuse. It's imam abuse. That's why you have an organization called FACE, which has investigated this type of stuff. And it's happened. And it's happened right here, right around the corner where I'm at right now. Uh, and it's bad. You never, you don't hear about that in the news. I mean, uh, there, NPR did a story on it. And we had a situation in California where you had a community in the Bay Area. They were engaging in a lot of this secret polygamy or muta. Muta is temporary marriage. And that's a very bad thing. I'm an advocate for public polygamy, where the marriage is open, not this, you want to be woke oh. and you want to be progressive, but you also want a little secret polygamy. That's not what I'm an advocate uh, of. But you, would, but, but you think it's unnatural to not have sex. Correct. Uh, I, sex, is a biological, sex is a biological need. Like if I don't get sex, you know, for a week or so, I kind of, it's it's like I got constipation or something. It's you know I'm 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 back. <laughs> well, I got to think on this. Yeah. Uh, come back to it because it, I mean I I've certainly chosen celibacy. Let me let me tell you about a friend of mine's wife. This is a very conservative <laughs> brother I know. Okay, and he's he's hardcore. I mean he's a little, and I got a break in a minute to go pray. It looks like prayer time is coming in. Okay, but um, um he had just got married. And he ate dinner and he went to sit on the couch. And on the couch, he fell asleep. Okay. And he woke up and he woke up and his wife was weeping. And he said, What's going on? She says, What have I done to displease you? Hmm. And because of the hadith saying of the Prophet Muhammad, sallam, was the saying of the Prophet, you know, that uh uh, I, I don't want to get the words wrong, but basically, if a man does not go to the woman's bed, oh. you know, out of anger, you know, there's this kind of a it's 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 bad yeah. on the woman. It's like a curse on the woman, right? Right. And 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 she is obligated to sexually satisfy, you know, to, to fulfill his sexual uh, needs and desires. And so he was like, "No, I just got tired. Like it's, it's like nothing. I just fell asleep. You know, no big deal. You know, don't worry about it." Hmm. 
So a devout Muslim woman is very concerned with sexually pleasing her husband hmm. and taking care of him sexually, you know. Um, and doesn't, doesn't uh, that work both ways? Well, Islamically, the woman has a right. Right. One of the one of the valid reasons a Muslim woman can pursue divorce is she's not sexually satisfied. Really? That in Islamic Sharia, this is one of the reasons a woman can seek a divorce is because she's not sexually satisfied from her husband. The husband also has an obligation to sexually satisfy his wife. So you got to be on top of your game. And so there's a popular scholar down here named Yasakati. He has an expensive course he's teaching. Mm -hmm. It's called Cover Her Like a Garment. It's basically helping to educate young Muslim couples on how to sexually please one another. Now, I joked with Yasser. I said, look, you're teaching the expensive class. Cover her like a garment. <laughs> I'll teach a discount group called B and a Blank. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, that might well, we might have to we might we might have to edit yeah, that one out. Bleep that out. <laughs> well, then I guess I'd have to teach a class on uh, no blanket at all, like just look the other direction. No blanket at all. I mean, the thing about in 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 Islam, if you're going without sex, they say you should fast to remove your sexual desires. Yeah. Fasting will help remove your sexual. Is desire. there no, so, is there no call for celibacy at all ever in the life of a Muslim? I mean, yeah. If you're not, if you're not married, you have to be celibate. If you're not married, you have to be celibate. You know, there's no lawful marriage. There's no lawful sex in Islam outside of marriage, unless you were like in the medieval times and you know you had slave girls or whatnot. But so there's like, no law. So, like, if 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 a guy for some reason can't get married or can't find someone to marry, then for the sake of virtue, he would be allowed or even encouraged to remain celibate. He has to. He has no choice but to remain celibate if he can't get married. So celibacy isn't necessarily something untrustworthy or bad. In fact, you could even in Islam, it might be the pursuit of virtue. And scholars have said if, you know, someone has same-sex attraction, that right, uh, this, this, is something, this is something that happens, uh, but the sin uh, is acting upon that, right? So you can't, you can't uh, engage in same-sex sexual relations, uh, but uh, you're not, uh, you know, you're not sinning if this is something, you know, you have uh, within you. I, I find it strange that in Islam, they would have such a great emphasis on fasting, but no, no concern for sexual fasting. I mean, if well, when you're fasting, you can't have sex. And one of the things that invalidates your fast is sex. Oh, really? Yeah. So well, like, then, then wouldn't it make sense that there might be people in the world who decide to take that to an extreme, I mean that I mean I, I'm fasting from sex permanently. There might have been some Sufi I'm orders. sacrificing this great good for the sake of a greater good. There might have been some Sufi orders that did that, but I don't I'm not familiar with them. There could have been some Sufi orders, you know. 
Uh, but uh, I'm not familiar with that. I would have to look into that a little more. But I know I, when I went through my atheist phase, I got really into Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And I read this quote from Nietzsche that he said, you can tell the value of a man's convictions by how much he will bet on them. And so mm -hmm. I, I decided I was going to go with whatever religion I found had guys who bet the most on it. Mm -hmm. And and that didn't include necessarily martyrs because like yeah. as Julius Caesar said, it's easy to find somebody who will die for a cause. It's hard to find someone who will yeah. live for it. He, he, he didn't want the guy that knew how to fly, but didn't know how to land the plane. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, martyrdom is, has its own, I mean, real true martyrdom has yeah. its own. Long history of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Well, a long history in any legitimate religion, I should think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah definitely. When I looked around and saw monks who had given up family, had given up wives and children, had given up material goods. I said, well, there's no doubt in my mind that those guys believe it. Why do you think I'm celibate? <laughs> think you're celibate because that's the rules of the Catholic Church. I mean, that's just the, the you know, I mean, doesn't say I have to be celibate. I could go off and get married if I wanted to. No, you can get married, but you can't be a, a, a monk, a priest, and True. not be celibate. You know, but you're, you're actually, you're, you're saying it as though I'm forced to be celibate but I didn't well, choose it. So why do you think I chose this life? Right, you chose the life, uh, but to remain within the life, you know, there's certain rules, right? Man. And that's one of the rules. I mean, it's like you're a man of the night's nice watch, you know, you know, the man in the night's watch and the game <laughs> of Thrones, you know. Now, now, let me juxtapose this for a minute. I All think right. that Islam, Islam is a very central tradition, right? So uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, loved women. And he married women and he talked about sex, right? And the scholars of Islam talked about sex. And we do have a conservatism to sexual relations, um, even so much so that some Muslims get married in America and they have inadequate sex lives because particularly the girls have been, it's been drilled into them since they were young. Sex is bad, boys are bad, sex is bad, boys are bad. It's so psychological that even after marriage, they can't really enjoy sexual relations. So this is an yeah. issue within the Muslim community, okay? It's an issue but, in the Christian community so too. Even though Islam is a um, text positive within the Sharia framework that mm -hmm. we operate in, you know, some people still have problems due to social uh, issues. So I'm coming from the side of the fence that we have always embraced sex. Yeah. And, um, you know, even in casual conversation with my Muslim friends, it's a hot topic to joke about a second wife, even though you don't really have a plan to get one. It's just a joke. You know, hey, man, you know, uh, we need to go make Dawa in Brazil, you know, <laughs> you know or, or something like that. I could see just as, as with the nuns, N-U-N-S, is that um, they, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like you're married to the church, right? Right. No, that's actually, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You're married to the church. So this is your love. Your love is the church and the basis of the church, you know, is the love of Jesus. And for a priest, it's similar. You're married, in a sense, to the church, right? You're, you, you've committed to a life of service to the church. So uh, you're removing yourself from worldly desire, from worldly ambition. from And, and a part of worldly desire and ambition is carnal desire and carnal ambition. I've been having this discussion, actually, with a friend of mine who writes books for atheist children. His name's Philip Pullman. He wrote a book called uh, The Golden Compass. And he's from Oxford. And I met him there. And, 
And he and I got in this big argument over dinner about, um, he said, the problem with Christianity is that it teaches kids to be afraid of sex and to hate their bodies and to scorn this world because they're looking forward to the next. And, and I've heard this about a thousand times, this argument, um, but I hadn't really taken it seriously until he said it to me. Uh, but then I got to thinking like, the Italians don't seem to have a problem with their bodies or sex and the French certainly don't. I think Venezuela, Brazil, all these Catholic countries. Right, right, These all these Catholic countries. So culturally, I think it's really just England <laughs> with its sort of Victorian Protestant, like Northern Western Europe. I would yeah, say. yeah, exactly. And I think that it, it boils down to what happens when you divorce, as it were, Christianity from the liturgy, from the sacraments, right? Because mm. Catholics believe that you know the sacrament, the Eucharist, is literal body and blood of Jesus. Mm. If you if you really take that seriously then I am like physically composed of God. Like I've consumed God. So I can't think that my body is something terrible and I wouldn't give up sex. I mean, it wouldn't be worth giving over to God if sex were something I was ashamed of. Okay. So celibacy is turning something over to God that's good and turning all that energy toward prayer, putting nothing before the search of, for God as it were. Anyway, I got to go in and I got to pray. I guess today's topic was celibacy and polygamy. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Et cum spiritu tuo. <laughs> peace. All right, peace, man. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Disagreement with Umar Lee and Father Augustine Weta. If you like this podcast and feel that there should be more disagreements, please subscribe, add a review. Tell your friends about us. <laughs> Salam alaikum. Head comes spiritu too.